Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman-Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. When I was graduating from law school, um, I had to take the bar exam. But when I went to go take the bar exam, they said, well, it will be a security risk if we let you take this exam with a screen reader. So subject to a court order forcing them to do it, I ended up taking the exam with the JAWS screen reader accommodation. They also had me uh, locked in a room with an armed guard. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I took the bar exam at gunpoint. And that was just one example of which the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in order to avoid. Unfortunately, in this case, it didn't. So we're doing this episode now in recognition of the 30th anniversary of the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The ADA was, in general, a pivotal point for codifying the civil rights of people with disabilities in the United States. We'll speak with Tim Elder, a blind disability rights attorney, about the long journey in recognizing the rights of people with disabilities, developing the current law, and why the journey is still not yet done. But first for our tip of the week, this week's tip comes from Tim Elder. One tip, right? Uh, small claims court is a process that most states have. And Most of these terms and conditions that require people to go to arbitration, like a lot of technology services have these terms and conditions that say you can't sue us in court. You have to you have to go into confidential private arbitration. Well, a lot of the uh, arbitration agreements exclude small claims uh, from coverage. And so someone who was savvy might try to deal with the digital accessibility problem through a, a small claims court process. It's, it's an interesting idea. It's the kind of thing that we're thinking about and trying to strategize about how do we really scale up and get more crowd participation because I'm busier than ever and we need more lawyers doing this work and we need more people able to self-advocate and, and, and get the, the work done on a, on a higher scale. Well, fortunately, we do keep moving the ball forward. That is very true. And small claims court can be an interesting alternative for some situations. If you're not familiar with small claims court, what it is is a mechanism by which individuals can have a case heard by a judge, typically without attorneys, so it avoids a lot of fees, although people can take attorneys if they wish. But mostly it's just people talking before a judge and then the judge making some judgment on the case. Typically, these situations, depending on the state, are limited to several thousands of dollars. So it really is for smaller situations. But it's an interesting alternative and should be considered. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 So now let's meet Tim. My name's Tim Elder. I am a blind attorney from California. Um, I'm a father of three young boys, a musician, and aspiring uh, lifelong learner. And have you been blind since birth? 
So I have had the genetic condition since birth that caused my blindness, which at the time was diagnosed as retinitis pigmentosa or RP. If I didn't know that I fully grasped it, I wasn't learning Braille, I didn't have special education. And so I primarily went through the educational system hiding it and made it pretty far through the educational system without having to disclose or really seek accommodations or things. It's an unfortunate story, really, but it highlights the sort of the gaps in our educational system where someone can make it pretty far through the system without having to identify with the disability. When did you start disclosing your visual issues? Towards the end of college, I really couldn't hide it anymore. So I started getting accommodations, started learning about screen readers and JAWS. And then I went on to head to law school and discovered the scholarship program of the National Federation of the Blind. And that exposure to blind people who were doing very positive things and, and had identified and, and embraced their blindness completely changed my life and my attitude about who I am and my blindness and how I identify that and, and embrace it. And that was sort of where I came to realize, hey, I am a blind person and I'm okay with that. And that's not a bad thing. We've interviewed many blind attorneys And almost overwhelmingly, we've gotten the feedback that even if they were at the top of their class in law school and many of their co-students were getting lots of job offers, it was very difficult for them to land their first job. What was your experience in that regard? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And I suspect that the answer to that question is going to vary based on the age of the attorney that you are asking. I think an attorney who was seeking a job prior to the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, prior to a lot of assistive technology, prior to the digitization of a lot of legal documents, I think they would have had a lot of difficulty finding a job. And I know plenty of older blind attorneys who who have some pretty bad horror stories to tell about how difficult it was for them to get jobs. For me personally, I had some pretty good opportunities out of law school and, and had some really good job offers. And some of my peers who are, you know, newer and, and graduating law school now or graduated law school in the last five years, they're getting some pretty amazing job opportunities. We have a blind woman who's currently clerking on the United States Supreme Court. That's one of the most prestigious positions you can possibly compete for in the legal market. There are various blind young associates starting at large law firms all over the country right now. So I think, at least for me and the generation that is my age and younger, the opportunities for employment and to really get equal opportunity and great experiences, it's definitely increased. There's definitely a lot of barriers and there's a lot more work still to do, but uh, the trend is moving in the right direction and in large part, thanks to the Americans with Disabilities Act. 
And did you finish law school before or after the passage of the ADA? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing because the ADA was passed when I was about 10, definitely after the American Disabilities Act. I graduated law school in 2010, so I've been in practice for about 10 years. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is the Americans with Disabilities Act, overall disability rights, the history thereof, and some expectations for the future. So before we start talking about what some of the accessibility requirements and laws are today. Maybe you can give us a brief overview of where we started and where we've come to. Yeah, um, I think we started to see some thought about this early in the 20th century. Things about um, the right to contract and and whether uh, a blind person should have the right to walk around in the world um, and whether there's negligence there, if a blind person is allowed to, to be out on the street. I mean, it sounds bizarre now, right? But there was a time where people were thinking about whether it's dangerous to just let people, let blind people be walking around by themselves out in public and, and whether they should be institutionalized or forced sterilization, right? I mean, it, it, there are people alive today who, who were around at a time when that was a thing. Um, thankfully, our history has moved forward, but you know we saw uh, changes in the civil rights era where you know various groups um, have fought for civil rights, and that kind of has sparked other groups to move things forward. Uh, there was a lot of organizing around the passage of the Rehabilitation Act uh, in the '70s, and that really was sort of the first federal law that specifically focused on uh, people with disabilities, if I'm remembering correctly. And how did that history progress? What happened next? From there, we, we as a society said, well, that's great for programs and activities that receive federal funding or for government access, but what about the private sector and businesses? And thankfully, Congress, on a bipartisan basis, right, uh, passed the Americans with Disabilities Act and said, look, this is good for everyone. Plenty of example in the legislature about how bipartisan it was. And it was meant to open up opportunities for people with disabilities. Say, look, in the United States, people have something to contribute. So it sounds like this has been kind of an evolutionary process, but the ADA was really a watershed moment. Can you kind of summarize in a sentence or two what the ADA tells us? I think the ADA tells us that as a society, we value contributions from people with disabilities. And we want to make sure that people with disabilities are given the chance to contribute as an employee, to contribute as, as a citizen, to contribute their dollars as a customer. And if we as a society will give them that opportunity, we'll all be better off because we'll benefit from the value 
of their contributions. I think it's been very successful and, and a lot of countries around the world have sort of seen the success of that, that law and have marveled at it. Like, wow, um, you know, you're, you're really empowering people with disabilities to, to participate and to contribute. And, and there's a lot of value that's been unlocked. How has the working of the ADA evolved in the 30 years since its passage? I would say that in general, the protections under the Americans with Disabilities Act have increased. The, the needle is, has moved in a positive direction in terms of creating a legal landscape for accessibility and, and equal access. Um, the ADA passed in 1990, but then, you know, regulations came about that sort of interpreted it and then courts and various levels played a large part in applying it in various ways so that it, we now you know, have this body of law and body of regulations and, and a lot of state laws that have copied the Americans with Disabilities Act um, that are, are now present today. So it has evolved over time. I will say, though, that notwithstanding the positive direction of the law, that positive legal requirement hasn't always converted over into actual accessibility and positive results in all cases. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that, of course, the ADA has been evolving and rights and privileges that are accorded to individuals with disabilities have been evolving over the years. I understand that you've been personally involved in some of that litigation. Can you talk about some of those experiences? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, because I'm a blind person and a blind attorney and I work in this space, I have a very personal connection to this law and, and what it means to me. Um, even before I was an attorney, um, I have been active in enforcing the law just in my personal life. For example, when I was graduating from law school, um, I had to take the bar exam. It's this very big test that has a lot riding on it. And I wanted to take it with a screen reader. I wanted to take it with JAWS, right? I, I, my entire law school career had always been taking exams with JAWS, um, writing my answers and doing all my work independently with a screen reader and braille display. But when I went to go take the bar exam, they said, well, it will be a security risk if we let you take this exam with a screen reader. Um, we're going to force you to use a human reader, notwithstanding the fact that you really don't have any experience working with a human reader. And, and for some people, a human reader would be totally fine. Um, but that was not a, an accommodation or a, a technique I had really used at all. Yeah, if you're not used to that, that's a very different way of working and a very different interaction. Yeah, and, and so we ended up litigating with the, the state bar um, and... Uh, at least in California, I, I ended up taking the exam with the JAWS screen reader accommodation, subject to a court order forcing them to do it. They also had me um, locked in a room with an armed guard, Jeez. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I suspect was maybe a little bit of pageantry for their you know security arguments. But in retrospect, it is kind of funny to think, yeah, I took the bar exam at gunpoint. But what a thing. I mean, like you weren't nervous enough because your career was on the line to have somebody with a gun in the room with you. 
Yeah, I, I would hate for them to think, you know, I'm I'm uh, pushing the wrong keyboard uh, command and copying the exam text to send it out on the Internet or something. So. One thing that surprises me about that story, when I think of people running into issues like that and resorting to litigation, I usually think of litigation taking a long time. How did you get to take the bar exam in a timely fashion? Sure. So there are procedures in litigation to speed things up when you have what's called irreparable harm. Um, in that case, uh, well, A, I had great lawyers. This wouldn't have been your faculty members. No, no, this this wasn't. This was there was legal assistance provided by the National Federation of the Blind. So this was this was an, and I wasn't the only one um, either. I wasn't the only blind law student that was dealing with this. There was a there was like a whole series of these cases that kept going in favor of the student. And then eventually, you know, the the bar examiners caved and said, "Okay, fine, we're going to we're not going to fight these cases anymore." And then they just as a as a matter of course started offering the accommodation. But in the in the legal process, when you've got irreparable injury, like if you miss this bar exam, you're going to lose a job opportunity or something, you can pursue what's called a um, preliminary injunction where the court gives the plaintiff the relief that they're seeking, right? In this case, it's injunctive relief, ordering them to provide the accommodation. Mm -hmm. um, they can give it to them ahead of time and then let the litigation follow the award of the injunctive relief uh, and then and then the ultimate issue gets litigated after it's already been provided so basically you got to act as though you had already won the case and then litigate the case the, yeah you you get the relief you're seeking now um but it's it, you know you have to uh, make a pretty strong showing that you're going to win so you said they allowed you to take the exam. Presumably you passed the exam. You became a practicing attorney. And now you've been involved in disability rights cases from the attorney's perspective. Are there any of those you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, sure. So, yes, I did pass the bar exam um, and started practicing in this field. And it's interesting. One of the reasons I got into this field was because of you know, that work that um, I did, you know, to advocate for myself during law school. Um, I also had a chance to do some work on the NFB versus target.com litigation that happened around the time I was in law school. And that sort of introduced me to this idea of applying the Americans with Disabilities Act to new emerging technologies. Just to remind our listeners, was that about web access to their site? Yeah, that was. That was one of the premier cases that applied the Americans with Disabilities Act to Target.com and, and a website. So it was it was right around uh, 2006 to 2009 um, that that case was decided and, and the judge applied the law to target.com. And then they, there was a big class settlement, but that case, and, and frankly, the price tag of that case for target really sort of, I think, set the stage for a lot of the web accessibility cases and litigation that followed it. But this particular very tech centric aspect of disability law was super interesting to me. 
this was a way to sort of express my love affair with tech uh, and my intellectual interest in legal issues and kind of do it in a way that was very personal to me as a blind person. And so a lot of the work I've done uh, over the course of this career has been to sort of advance the ball on technology access issues for people with disabilities. What particular kinds of situations have you been focusing on? Obviously, websites and mobile apps, right? That's something our firm, Thierry Legal Practice, has done a lot of work on. And then in employment discrimination, making sure that the technology in the workplace is accessible, right? Now we're we're even more so now that everyone's working remotely, right? Um, it's true in education too, but making sure that the virtual classrooms and the virtual workrooms that we're going into now, that the software version of that is accessible, that accommodations uh, are being made via JAWS scripting or using accessible information technology, making sure that big platform companies um, that are providing cloud-based systems, that they're actually thinking about accessibility natively rather than forcing employees and employers to try to accommodate an employee. I mean, if I had my way, all the technology platforms would build their stuff accessibly. That would be nice. You know, it would be nice. But then you wouldn't even need accommodations in the workplace, right? Like an employee could just pull up the computer and said, I'm your blind employee. I'm ready to work. No accommodations needed. Yes, yes. You know, you know, it occurs to me, you talk about that target case and their website not being accessible, that much as we can win big cases like that and make large segments of the web or some other part of life accessible, there's still other battles to be fought, even in the same arena sometime. It wasn't so long ago, wasn't it only a year or two ago, Domino's had a similar issue with the accessibility of their website and ordering or something? Yeah, and Domino's decided to fight it. Which is incredible. Even though the, the, the this Target.com case had been decided and the, the clear weight of all of the legal authority was really moving to just be consistent with the idea that the technology needs to be accessible under the Americans with Disabilities Act. For whatever reason, Domino's followed the advice of its lawyer to try to fight that. And they lost in a pretty big way and wasted a lot of time and money on litigation that could have just been invested in making their website accessible. So it sounds like overall the ADA has really been a tremendous opportunity for improving accessibility for people with disabilities of all kinds. But I wonder if, despite all the positive, there are some unintended consequences there's an unintended side effect of having really strong civil rights protections is that um, some of the resilience that the older generation developed in trying to deal with things and solve problems that didn't have legal fixes, right, was they learned how to develop workarounds and cope and deal with other strategies. It's unfortunate because that takes time and energy away and you, you just want to have an equal experience. But it raises some questions is like, you know, we've still got more work to do, but are 
blind students still doing everything they can to learn everything that they need to learn so that they can be as independent as possible as opposed to, you know, sort of um, getting, taking the easier path to something that makes them less independent. That's an interesting point. When people are forced to be resourceful, it's incredible how they can often step up to the plate and become more creative and more proactive. Yeah, like like Ira, awesome, convenient service, right? But if people became dependent on Ira and never learned how to do things independently with Screen Reader or with other techniques, you know, it, it will ultimately be a problem down the road. Interesting point. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about the Americans with Disabilities Act and how to contact Tim Elder and his legal firm. If people are interested in learning more about some of these topics and or contacting you, where would you direct them? My firm, TRE Legal Practice, is, as you might imagine, at trelegal.com. That's our website. And we've got all kinds of information on that site about some of the cases we are highlighting or working on. You know, we're doing some stuff around employment and technology access. We have big cases against Uber and Lyft with respect to riders with service animal users. We've got a big case against a developer who built a website for the state of California's um, park reservation system, which is a unique case because we're going after the technology to the developer who built the website for the government. We're not going after the government directly. Just one more example of how we're trying to kind of move the needle forward on digital accessibility is too often I, we would file a case and then we would hear from the main defendant, well, we'd really like to make it accessible, but our web developer, you know, we don't have any control. It's our web developer or, oh gosh, we'd love to do it, but we don't have any control. It's an off the shelf product or it's a cloud-based service and we can't change it. And so I think legally we need to advance the law to move it upstream so that some of these technology developers realize that they do carry some liability. Um, but, but yeah, we're, we're interested in all things digital accessibility and, and generally advancing the ADA forward for its next 30 years. So we're, we're happy to talk to anyone who, who's interested in this. And So if somebody had a question, can you be reached by phone or email? Sure. Uh, all of the contact is on the website at trelegal.com, but you can also reach us by phone, which is um, 415-873-9199. Again, 415-873-9199. And my email address is tlder at trelegal.com. Do you have a social media presence? Of course. <laughs> we are at T-R-E Legal on Twitter. And you can find all of that information, including a link to the ADA website at www.ada.gov in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 2031. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about getting around in the healthcare system. 
Navigating the ins and outs of the healthcare system can be a confusing and daunting task, even if one is cited. But what if you're not? We'll speak with Deborah Kendrick about her newest book, Navigating Healthcare When All They Can See Is That You Can't, which offers useful suggestions and strategies when you might most need them. And what a timely topic during these unusual times. So we hope to see you next week for that show. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy, and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.